1: This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less tax. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So, where all this talk about vaccine, there's all this talk about post-pandemic, couple of questions come up. First of all, who's going to win post-pandemic? And second question is, what's really going to happen post-pandemic? And uh, I'm very grateful to have a a good friend, one of the smartest people I've ever met, and uh, certainly uh, one of the experts on predicting the future of the economy, uh, Mr. Jim Rickards. Jim is the author of many best-selling New York Times bestsellers and has a new book coming out, The New Great Depression, winners and losers in a post-pandemic world, which is exactly what we want to talk about today. So welcome, Jim. And if you would, for th- those few people in the world who don't know who you are, if, if you would just give us a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's
0: great to be with you. Uh, great to be on the uh, on the show. And uh, you're right, the new book is uh, coming out in uh, literally a matter of days. Uh, I happen to have a, a, an advanced copy here. It's The New Great Depression winners and losers in a post-pandemic world so it's exactly what uh exactly as you introduced it and exactly what we want to talk about and look forward to uh doing that yeah my own background uh i uh i have a got a graduate degree in international economics uh but then went on to get a law degree actually two law degrees and uh had a long career as uh, started as actually as an international tax council at the citibank so deeply immersed in the tax world and then uh sort of mid-career switched to uh, securities and derivatives and spent a lot of time in investment banking, uh, hedge funds, uh, ran a a stock exchange for a while. Um, And then uh, spent 10 years working with our uh, friends at the CIA and uh, uh, financial counterterrorism. I wasn't uh, jumping out of helicopters with a knife between my teeth, but I was working on uh, ways to uh, identify and interdict bad actors acting through the financial service. We invented a new Branch of intelligence called Markint, which is market intelligence. Uh, there's human, which is human intelligence. Sigint, which is signals intelligence. We we invented market intelligence and um, I took that uh, further and built some you know, working prototypes of some systems. And then uh, uh, somewhere along the way, I was doing an interview and got a call from uh, uh, a literary agent. She said, "Jim, I heard you on the NPR. I think it was Planet Money was the show. And uh, would you like to write a book?" And I said, "Sure." And uh, well, I said. Interesting, I think it was my exact response. Let's have lunch. We we hit it off and ended up, uh, my first book, Currency Wars, came out in 2011. And then I've been writing books ever since, you know, doing a lot else besides. So uh, either I had an eclectic career or I couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I've been able to do a number of things that all connect in the the investing, whether it's investing, legal, national security, intelligence, uh, they're they're connected in a lot of ways more so than ever. And uh, I've done all those things.
1: Well, I've, I've always been, uh, I've, it's always thrilled me, of course, that you started your career in tax. Um, I never ended my career in tax. So um, we, we have that in common. On top of that, I think tax actually has, is a major player in what happens in the economy. So what do you think, uh, first of all, we, we had a little bit of chat about this before. What do you think, how long do you think this pandemic's going to ha- go on? And what's going to happen in particular in the next 12 to 18 months?
0: Well, a, a couple of things. Number one, the, the pandemic will go on longer than most people expect. So it's been, call it a year, it was really in, uh, I mean, the first case, there might have been an earlier case, but the first case that's, that's well documented was November 2019 um, in, in Wuhan, China. It spread from there in China. By January, it had spread to Italy um, and the United States then we had our, it really grew, well, it grows exponentially, but you start with small numbers, they start doubling every couple of days. Well, you go from 20 to 40 to 80 cases, but pretty soon you're at 10,000 cases and so forth. And, and it keeps going from there. So we had that first lockdown, uh, kind of March to uh, June, let's say uh, 2020. Uh, but if you go back to the conversation at the time, it said, yeah, this is really bad. You know, the pandemic's bad, that you know, obviously the deaths were tragic. Uh, hospitals are being overwhelmed, et cetera. But uh, we'll get through it. Um, we get herd immunity. Um, you know, something will happen, and uh, by the summer, we'll be able to reopen. And you look at the the legislation at the time. Those bailout bills in in March, April, and May of 2020, and they were all one to two trillion dollars each, throwing four trillion dollars of debt on top of a one trillion dollar. Baseline budget deficit. Now, we're talking trillions, not billions anymore, that's it's a little passe. Uh, but those are really a uh, one way to think about. It was, it was a bridge loan from April to July. It was a three month bridge loan. That, that whole payroll production, payroll protection plan loan program, which, which I'm not here to debate the policy. I think it was probably necessary. Uh, but uh, it was if you got the money, uh, the, the formula was basically two and a half months payrolls. So it take two and a half right. months payroll document it, apply, get the money. It was easier for some than others, but but it was designed to keep people on the payroll through June on the theory that you could reopen the economy in June. Well, they tried to reopen the economy in June and it failed. Uh, the, it was a, a second wave of infections. Now we're back to a second round of lockdowns. And By the way, I'm forecasting a recession for this quarter, basically first quarter of 2021, a negative growth. Um, this idea, but we can go back to last spring. What were people talking about? They they, they were using the phrase pent up demand. You know, that right. the economy is gonna be fine. It's oh, gonna come back. back because it's pent up demand. And I, I go back to 2009, remember green shoots? Yep. Uh, everyone was talking about green shoots. Well, we had 10 years of 2.2% growth. Post 1980 recoveries had average growth of 3.2%. We grew, there was an expansion starting in June, 2009, but it was 2.2%. If you think 1%, doesn't sound like a lot, apply 1% to a $20 trillion economy and compound it over 10 years, the lost wealth was 4 to $5 trillion. That's how much wealth uh, disappeared or we left on the table because we didn't get back to trend growth. So, so much for green shoes. Well, the same thing with pent up demand. I, I you know, I, I tell people, well, in, in April, uh, March and April, like my wife and I usually go out to dinner on a Friday night. Well, March, April, May, we didn't go out to dinner. We were quarantining just like everybody else. By June, some restaurants started to reopen, but we went and we went out to dinner, but we didn't order ten dinners. We ordered one, like we usually do. In other words, those other nine dinners that was permanently lost. There was, there was no pent up demand. There's, that was a permanent loss. And apply that to, um, you know, airlines, uh, travel, and you know, nail salons, bars, restaurants, dry cleaners, et cetera. Those were all permanent losses. And then everyone said, "Well, they'll they'll rehire people." No. I mean, if a restaurant closed uh, during the first lockdown, and let's just say you did reopen in July, if you had 20 waiters and bartenders, you didn't bring back 20, you brought back maybe 10, maybe 10. because you, So the other 10 were lost. And by the way, that ignores all the restaurants that closed permanently. Uh, you know, I'm using restaurants as an example, but there are many other examples of service businesses. They, they don't have $10 million of working capital. They're not like, uh, you know, Apple has a trillion dollars of working capital. But right. the point is they have maybe four weeks, eight weeks, some of them 13 weeks, and that's it. And if you because you can be you can be closed, but you still have to pay the rent. You still have to pay benefits. You still have to pay property taxes, you know, et cetera. And so you're running negative cash flow and eventually you run out. So a lot of these places are never reopening. Now, there's a vacant storefront. Maybe some, somebody someday will come back and start a new restaurant. I expect that will happen, but not soon. So we're not talking about temporary. There's no pent up demand. These are not temporary losses. Many of them were permanent. These are permanent job closures. Now, now here's, here's the point, Tom. People say, uh, yeah, a restaurant, but you know they look at the stock market. Stock markets are at all time highs. Uh, 401Ks are up, uh, so it's all good. No, you can't you cannot look down your nose at small business. Small and medium sized enterprises are 50% of all jobs and 45% of GDP. And it's been destroyed. You cannot destroy or lock down 45% of GDP and expect the economy to come roaring back or get out of a recession.
1: No, I agree. So 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 what happens in the next six months and the next 12 months, Jim, when you have all those businesses gone out of business and they're not coming back? Correct. Okay. I 100% agree. And most of our listeners are, are business owners. So what do, you know, what is coming and, and what do we see in the next six to 12 months?
0: Well, real estate is, I'll, I'll talk about real estate for a second. It's a really interesting sector. Typically, as you, you know, because um, you're, you're obviously advise a lot of real estate companies, you're an investor yourself. Commercial real estate and residential real estate tend to move somewhat together. Not exactly, not all the time, but you know, if interest rates are low and the economy is booming, um, you know, they're going to go up together or, or down together when you go into a recession. That's not true in this recovery. And leaving me, leave me aside the fact that this may be, I think we're looking at a double dip recession. We had a technical recession from February to June 20, uh, 2020. My view is we're in a new re- recession right now. So a double dip recession, we haven't seen that since 1980, 81. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll get through that eventually. But what what's going on now is that residential real estate in certain sectors is booming and it's booming for really bad reasons, which is there is an exodus out of the cities. People are leaving as fast as they can. They're leaving New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Chicago and other cities. And they're going to uh, Phoenix, um, maybe you know, Boulder, Nashville, you know, a place like Ports- Portsmouth, New Hampshire, small town, but no, no income tax in New Hampshire, obviously Texas and Florida, Miami is booming, et cetera. So you have this migration and we're talking millions of people, not 10,000, 20,000. All you have to do is look at um, the rates for renting a U-Haul trailer. If you're going from LA to Phoenix, it's $4,000, but if you're going from Phoenix to LA, it's $1,000 approximately. Well, that's because all the trailers are going one <laughs> right. way. Good, good luck getting them. I know people move from-, yeah, from Nobody's
1: California. moving into California right now.
0: Correct, and, that, and actually it, it has political implications because the new census numbers are being finalized and California is gonna lose two to three congressional seats as will New York. And Texas and Florida are going to gain them, so there, there, there are consequences of this. But the point being, people are moving out of cities now. They're either, if you're somewhere in the New York area and you can't, you know, quite drop everything and move to Nashville, uh, they're moving to the suburbs. You know, a light, nice right. place like you know, Litchfield, Connecticut, or whatever. And of course, work from home is a big part of that. Uh, people suddenly realize, hey, I don't have to be in New York, and they're not going to. So. Um, so that's why residential real estate is booming selectively again location right. matters but in these target commercial real estate is different commercial real estate is crashing everywhere and for partly because people are moving out but also because of work from home uh, and you know so if you have 10 floors uh, in a major you know commercial office building in in downtown new york or you know, midtown new york uh, and all of a sudden they're vacant because all your employees are working from home you may come back, but you'll probably need two floors. And what you'll do is you'll have uh, uh, you have like a locker room, like attractive, but you know, kind of a locker room. Your offices will be temporary. So work from home employee will say, Hey, I need the office for two days next week. Okay, confirmed. You'll come in your locker, you'll have your laptop and uh, you know, sport coat and a tire, whatever you it, need. It's almost
1: like it's almost like every business will have its own WeWork space.
0: Well, that's right? exactly right. Cause we works will be going out of business, partly for that reason, which is nobody nobody wants to be you know, kind of clustered in a in a WeWork's facility. They have they have other problems. You know, biggest landlord in the country, um, or biggest rent, sorry, tenant in the country, I should say. They rent most of their space with all the prime locations in a lot of major cities. Can't pay the can't pay the rent basically. So, um, but but that aside, even for for companies that have their own premises in you know landmark uh, or, or or you know kind of major uh, commercial real estate offices in major cities. They're going to go from ten floors to two floors. They they right. won't disappear. Well, that has collateral effects, not not only in terms of the rent, obviously, and and the vacancy rate, which is going to skyrocket. But what about you know lunchtime shopping, uh, food trucks, uh, restaurants, uh, cleaning people, maintenance people, etc. There are all these ancillary jobs. So the ripple effects have just started to play out, and you know without mentioning names, but I'm um, on some some boards of some real estate companies, and uh, one of the top people, uh, again, I can't mention the name, but if I did, you go, yeah, that guy I got it, told his people, keep looking, keep your eyes open, but you don't really wanna to touch commercial real estate till late 2021 at the earliest, maybe 22. So we have this bifurcation where residential real estate in what I call target jurisdictions, places people wanna move, either for climate or taxes or lifestyle, etc. cetera, are, the residential real estate is booming, commercial real estate is collapsing across the board, has not hit bottom. You know, we, I mean, we have rent strikes or just rent abatements, uh, depending right. on the jurisdiction. New York, I you was know, a New York lawyer. Um, the tenant landlord law in New York was always very favorable to the tenant in terms of occupancy and conditions, except when it came to evictions. And then it was very favorable to the landlord. You could actually get an eviction done in 60 days, which is not true everywhere. That's not true anymore. They've suspended the eviction law, so all of a sudden nobody's paying rent either because they can't afford it or don't want to. You can't evict them, and that seems like a good deal for the tenants. It's like a subsidy. What about the landlord? Most of the landlords, the owners, are leveraged. So if I don't pay the landlord rent, the landlord can't. Somebody's telling
1: the landlord they have they they can stop paying. Uh, they they can stop paying their mortgage.
0: Correct. So where, so where does that loss fall? Eventually, the landlords drop off the keys and walk away.
1: Well, and eventually, it falls to the bank, right? I mean, to,
0: well, well, it might fall to the banks. But remember, the banks are very good at securitizing the commercial mortgages and selling them to who? You and me. I mean, look look in your 401k. You have a uh, yeah. high yield of commercial real estate. You, you just might. I mean, I, I don't, but uh, uh, a lot of people do. They don't even know they own this stuff. So this is going to take, here's the thing. It's going to take a year or more to play out. So that's a big sector where- yeah. The losses uh, ha- has not sunk in. Um, the service sector we already talked about that's been devastated and it's going to come back very very slowly at best. The equity market, you know, I call the S and P five hundred the S and P six. Uh, we know who the six are. It's you know it's Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Google, Facebook. Uh, maybe I left one out, but uh, but the point being um, they're forty percent because the S and P five hundred is a cap weighted index. Those six stocks I just mentioned are close to 40% of the total cap weighting of the whole index. Uh, You know, throw in uh, Tesla, I guess they were just admitted. Yeah, you you get there. So, uh, okay, so the S&P 6 or 7 or 10 or however many stocks uh, is doing fine. What about the S&P 490, the other 490 stocks? The answer is they're flat to down. Uh, Yeah, individual exceptions, but on average, they're flat to down. So do we have another tech bubble? Well, I'm not going to short it. I don't want to get run over by an 18-wheeler, but I'm not buying it either because uh, it it does have bubble dynamics. So who's going to win in the next 10 months? uh, Cash, um, treasury notes, uh, gold and silver, uh, some alternatives. uh, and as I mentioned, if you can find the right investment vehicle for residential real estate, again, when, when you talk about investment vehicles, REITs or, or, or private funds, et cetera, to some extent real estate is real estate location matters, but you gotta look at the management, who's running it, who's in charge of it. That's, that's really what you're betting on. But if you've got the right area uh, and the right
1: management and you can get into those funds, those should do very well. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, You're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. Let, let's say that you're a small business right now, like most of our listeners. Um, what do you do? What do you do to make sure that you are one of those who thrives in the next 12 to 18 months instead of one of the big losers?
0: Sure. Well, the first thing that a lot of people don't understand is, is diversification. Now, diversification is a really good risk management strategy. Everyone agrees on that. But people get, you know, a higher expected return with less volatility. That's the whole idea. But people don't understand how you diversify, I run into people that go, Well, I'm in in 30 different stocks in 10 different sectors. Uh, so I'm highly diversified. No, you're not. You're in one asset class, right. stocks. Okay, I understand. You know, maybe you got some technology and consumer non-durables and uh, you know minerals and mine, whatever. But you're not diversified. You're in stocks. That's one asset class. Real diversification means not just more instruments in one asset class, but more asset classes. So you can have some money in the stock market. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying sell all your stocks. You know, but not too much. Have some in alternatives if you can get in the kind of real estate fund and/or other hedge funds like natural resources, uh, you know, etc. Have a big slug of cash, and this drives people crazy. I say I'm about maybe 30% in cash. People go, Cash has no yield. Well, first of all, we could be looking at the deflation, deflation is is a more likely outcome than inflation, at least in the Mm -hmm. short run. In a deflationary world, cash can be your best performing asset Mm -hmm. because it has zero yield. But if you have 2% deflation, the real return on cash is 2% because your money's worth more, buys more. So uh, don't underestimate the impact of cash in a deflationary world. But cash has a couple other benefits. Number one, it's the exact opposite of leverage. It reduces portfolio volatility. So if you've got if you've got some volatile stuff over here, you know, maybe gold or gold mining shares or technology, and you've got some volatile stuff over here and you know, natural resources or treasury notes or equities for that matter. Cash has no volatility, so it reduces the average volatility of the portfolio. So you can have these kind of sexy bets if you want, but but you can still sleep at night if you have cash. But cash has another benefit, which is uh, it gives you optionality. Cash, in effect, constructively is is an at-the-money call option on every asset class in the world. Right now, visibility is tough. It's hard to know. I I do talk about what's going to happen in my book, and uh, we're talking about it now, but uh, it's a challenge. Um, And things can change, of course. You have to be nimble. So uh, six months from now or a year from now, we might have much better visibility. Well, if you're the person with cash, you can pivot into those sectors that make the most sense. But if you make your bets, if you make all your bets now, you know, it's very difficult to get out of it. You know, good luck getting your money back from Henry Kravis and he's gonna keep it for seven years or whatever. So my point being the person with cash has reduced volatility, which is a good thing and higher optionality, which is also a good thing. And it's a deflation head. So there's a place for for cash for those reasons. Uh, I like treasury notes, Uh, treasury notes uh, I would expect Yield to maturity. It was going to be negative, uh, so that'll be one of the great capital gain upper, capital gains opportunities ever. And people go, wait a second, negative interest rates. The Fed hasn't said anything about negative interest rates. They're different. Uh, the The Fed sets the the Fed has a target policy rate on Fed funds. I don't expect that target to go negative. It's it's zero to twenty five basis points right now. Call it zero. Okay, so rates are at zero. I do not expect the Fed. To go negative. They could, but but they they've seen they've had enough experience from Europe, Sweden, Switzerland, and Japan to know that negative rates don't work. Uh, you're through the looking glass. It's not, it's not more of the same. Cutting rates from 2% to zero can help. Cutting them from zero to negative one doesn't help because people actually say, more. I mean, what signal are you sending with negative rates? Right. You're you're saying it's going to be deflation. Well, if I think there's going to be deflation, I'm going to defer consumption because prices are going to go down. It's right. the opposite of what the eggheads think, but that's how real people think. So you don't expect that. But that's not true in a ten-year Treasury note because there's huge secondary market trading. So it, the, the yield to maturity on ten-year Treasury note is not about Fed, uh, the Fed policy rate. It's about what you, how you and I want to transact. So if I'm selling you a ten-year Treasury note and it has a, a strip of coupons, you know, it's going to pay interest for right. the next ten years or whatever. If you if you bid for it, if you pay me a price that's greater then the present value of the strip plus the principal, your, your yield to maturity is gonna be negative. You're gonna get your money back and you're gonna get all your interest, but you're not gonna get what you paid me. Now, why would you do that? Well, you might do it because you think you can sell it to somebody else at an even higher price, which is possible. Also European investors and other investors might like it because they're thinking in euros. So even a negative yield to maturity in dollars can be a positive return in euros sure. if the euro goes down against the dollar. So there are reasons for this to happen. Um, we've seen it in a lot of other countries. I do expect that'll happen, but with with uh yield maturity right now, about 94 basis points. And if that goes negative 10, 20 basis points, that's a huge capital gains opportunity. It doesn't sound like a lot, but there's I don't want to get into bond math, but there's something called convexity or the dollar value, one basis point. But the 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 capital gain per drop in interest rates is greater when interest rates are lower to begin with. And that's where we are
1: that, that makes sense it's a, it's a relative position right so yeah. so i want to take a moment to tell you about norada real estate are you having a hard time finding great investment properties unfortunately the best deals are rarely found locally successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets Narada Real Estate Investments provides you everything you need to invest in some of the best deals around the country. Everything from turnkey rental properties to mortgage financing to property management. Visit their website to learn more and download your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at turnkeyrealestateinvesting.com. That's turnkeyrealestateinvesting.com. We just got a few minutes left, but I've got to ask that to me, this is the big elephant in the room. And that is uh, Joe Biden and MMT. And what kind of effect will that whole philosophy have um, on the coming world? Um, You know, I'm not just talking about 12 months out, but 10, five years out, 10 years out, you talk about the great depression, the new great depression. You're not talking about a a one quarter recession here. You're talking about something long-term. Correct. And, and, you know,
0: A technical, technical definition of recession is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP and a couple of other bells and whistles, but that's basically it, determined by the National Bureau of Economic Research up in Cambridge. But a depression is different. A, a depression, first of all, much longer. This could go on for I mean, some research that says it could go on for 30 years, some of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, which I talk about in my book. But um, depression doesn't mean continuous declining GDP. What it does mean is uh, GDP below trend. You can have growth in a depression as we did during the first great depression, but it's below trend because you start out from such a low level, you never kind of get back to trend growth. And that's what a depression is and has a lot of effects. But um, yeah, in terms of the, uh, the the effects of this, I mean, this will go on for 30 years. You know, Jay Powell says, you know, interest rates are, uh, we're gonna keep them at zero to 2023. And it's like, okay, try 2043. Because that, that's, what the, that's what the research indicates. There's a, there's a paper I, I talk about in my book from uh, an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and two academic colleagues that looked at a 650 year time series. That, that's my kind of time series. I don't put much weight on one year time series, but it goes back to the Black Death of the 1350s and looks at every pandemic in which there were, were 100,000 or more fatalities. Um, and of course, the black death, they estimated around 75 million dead. The Spanish flu in 1918, they estimated around 100 million dead. Uh, but there are only two others where you had 2 million fatalities or more. One of them actually was the Hong Kong, sorry, the Asian flu in 19, uh, 1958. But COVID is right now we're at 1.8 million fatalities. That's going to go over 2 million. So that's going to be the third highest fatality pandemic in the last 650 years. Right now it's fifth, it's gonna pass two others and, and become third. And what the research shows is that the time to normalization, like when did interest rates get back to normal? When did you know employment and investing capital markets get back to normal? The answer is 30 to 40 years, not 30, 40 months, 30, 40 years. So, uh, and the effects of this time will be intergenerational be behavioral. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, a very prosperous time in, in U.S. economic history. I did not live through the Great Depression, but my parents did and my grandparents did. And I was raised with a depression mentality, even though I didn't live in one. We went out as nine-year-olds and with wagons door-to-door collecting tin cans and newspapers. Remember,
1: uh, uh,
0: same, but, same, same here. And same we weren't here. doing it for environmental reasons. It might have been good for that, but we were doing it because you could right. Recycle, right. recycle the tin to build right. tanks and battleships. And so... That didn't change until the late '60s, when the baby boomers, and it was like, you know, uh, uh, you know, rock and roll, and and we all started spending money and borrowing money, et cetera. It didn't. In other words, the the behavioral and psychological impact of the Great Depression lasted for thirty years after the Great Depression, and that was not a pandemic. But it's consistent with this research. You know, I have. I have a couple, you know, a bunch of grandchildren actually, and some of them, but some of them are three, four, or five years old, and you know, they get ready for school in the morning, and they put on their coat and their boots and hats, and they put on a mask. A mask, yep. And good reasons for it, but kids are very adaptive. But you know, the, these are kids who are growing up, thinking, "I got to wear a mask to school because there's well, so, germs." Well, so it's like my
1: five-year-old, my five-year-old and three-year-old, when we go for, you know, go for a walk, and uh, the people come and and they say, "Oh, we have to move to the other side of the street because of the virus." And Correct. It's very. It's it's imprinted. It's absolutely imprinted in them. That's so right. I can, but I could that's that's exactly
0: that. that's exactly right, Tom. But the point is, it doesn't go away. It stays with you, and it affects yep. behavior in lots of different ways. So, uh, so that's what we, we talk about in the book. so it it's not a gold book, but it talks about gold at the end. Talks about real estate along the lines we described, uh, equities and cash and other investment strategies. But I uh, uh, I, I make the point that. You can make money in good markets and bad markets. You, great fortunes have been made. And, and you know. And there was one guy, Hugo Stennis, was the richest man in Germany during the Weimar hyperinflation because he borrowed in Reichsmarks, bought hard assets, coal, uh, oil, and transportation assets, paid off all his debts and worthless money and kept the assets. He, he was known as the inflation king. Uh, so the point being, you can make money even in disaster scenarios, but you have to see them coming. And that's what we talk about in the book.
1: It does seem just a, a very final uh, thing. It does seem that hard assets—you're never really going to lose a lot with hard assets. Would you agree with that? Is is that a is that something that you can pretty much always depend on?
0: Yeah, but you have to watch your bubbles. You can lose money. You know, if, if you bought gold in August 2011, the, the next four years weren't were not a lot of fun, but we're not in that mode right now. We're we're past that. We've had the. Mini spike. We had the bottom. We're back in a new bull market for gold. I expect it to I expect gold to go to at least ten thousand dollars an ounce, possibly higher. Um, and uh, some of the other investment plays we talked about will do well. I expect treasury notes to do very well. Cash is a good, you know, comfort area uh, uh, you know, uh, and because uh, it reduces volatility. And I think natural resources will do fine, and uh, and residential real estate. So yeah, uh, all those asset categories should do very well.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Once again, uh, Jim Rickards, The New Great Depression. Every one of Jim's books is a must read. Uh, So I'm very excited that this one's coming out so that I can read this one too, Jim. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, thank you, everybody. Remember that when we get this kind of education, we're always going to make way more money and pay way less taxes.
0: You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com.